This is Van Color. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by one of the greatest entertainers in the entire country, described as a Canadian institution since 1987 by the Georgia Strait, a staple of much music during the 1990s as a VJ and an interviewer, known for his colorful appearance, gruff voice, and biting social critique and therapeutic ridicule, his show Night Party, which was later called Ed's Night Party, and then Ed and Red's Night Party, ran for 14 seasons on City TV. You also know him from his fromage specials on Much Music, where he absolutely skewered the year's cheesiest music videos. He is the creative force behind the FU Politics podcast as part of the FU Network, which I am humbled to say that I've contributed to as a panelist. By the way, the FU stands for For Us. This is surreal for me. He is here via the magic of Zoom. He is Ed the Sock. Ed, how are you? I, I'm getting a bit... I, I was going to take a nap. I didn't know when you were going to finish with that, with that damned intro. <laughs> I'm so stoked to have you here via Zoom. I was just trying to convey my excitement. Glad, I'm glad to be here. I have to make one correction, please, which is that uh, you mentioned that I was on all through the 90s. I was on more through the uh, 2000s than I was on in the 90s. Did I say 1990s? Oh, a staple. I did. A staple of much music. That's right. That's right. I started I was started in 1994 um, and then finished in 2008, 2009. So that's uh, more years in the 2000s than in the 90s. Fair enough. I stand corrected. I'm sorry about that, Ed. I just hate that people always say the 90s, the 90s, which just makes it seem like I'm some like relic from further back. <laughs> it's like I've only been gone 10 years, not 20. You know that wasn't my intention. Of course I know that's not in your, your intention. <laughs> you didn't invite me here to insult me. I know you, Mo. You're not crafty like that. I'm not very crafty at all, no. No, you're not crafty because you're honest and sincere, and uh, and I respect that. You know who was crafty? Wiley Coyote. Did he ever win? <laughs> no. So, what do you want to talk about, Mo? I'm glad to be here. I, I, I am a fan of This is Van Color. Uh, I'm, I'm I honored. That, Thank uh, you. I think that what you, you're doing there with uh, this podcast is one of the most important things uh, on podcasting, uh, you know, on broadcasting in general in Canada, bringing people honesty, bringing people sincerity, authenticity, all the things that uh, we seem to feel we're missing from the, the, I hate to use the term mainstream media because it's been so co-opted by the morons on the right uh, and they make it synonymous. Mainstream media means synonymous with liars and stuff, which isn't true, Uh, but uh, you're doing good work with uh with with uh this is van color and always glad to have you on our fu politics podcasts i'm honored thank you for that ed i really appreciate it i'm i wanted you here because i wanted to talk to you man i want to know how social distancing is going because i feel like having a mandated physical distance from people this is your jam you're in your element well i'm kind of a pioneer uh because uh (laughs) I've been uh, social distancing from people since 1987. <laughs> um, I've been doing it as best I can. And yeah. this, is, this is, 
this is no change for me, really. Most of the time I spend in my, uh, my home, uh, mm-hmm. Angrilla, and uh, I, I go out only when I have to. I yeah. rarely go to social locations because then I always, I always get stuck talking to somebody I don't want to talk to. And you'd think <laughs> that me being me, I would just say, you know what, I don't want to talk to you. But no, I sit there, I, I humor them, because usually they're the kind of people that no one else wants to talk to, and it's not because they're belligerent. The belligerent ones, I, I sh- the, that's short order. I end yeah. that conversation. Um, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk with belligerent morons, but these people who just nobody seems to want to talk to, because they're kind of shy and wallflowerish and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I always feel sorry for them. So I wind up standing there talking to them and, and, and discovering why no one else wanted to talk to them. But, uh, you know, I figure their self-esteem has been bashed badly enough. I don't need to add to it. So there I sit, thinking about every other thing going on on the planet while trying to keep in mind when he pauses. You're the patron saint of pity, Ed. Well, you know, I just, I, I, I have this, obviously I have an enmity towards uh, a belligerent, hostile stupidity, but I have a soft spot for people who are just shy. And even if sure. they're just, even if they're stupid, but they're quiet about it, I have a bit of a soft spot for that. So yeah. I, uh, I, I, I sit there listening and then I wait for... The, the pause and what and when they're talking, realizing that I'm supposed to supposed to say something then, and then I say something, hoping that it somehow relates to what they just talked about. Usually, <laughs> some kind of platitude, um, which usually you know is so general that it applies to what they're to, to what they're saying. Sometimes sure. it doesn't whatsoever. It's like when yeah. I someone tries to talk to me in in French, and uh, all I say when they finish talking is "May we." Because that's all I know, which means very yes, as I understand it. And they sort of look at me strangely, and then they realize I don't speak French, and that's the end of that. (laughs) Well, let's talk about loud, out loud stupidity. You drew a lot of heat with the brass of the Conservative Party of Canada last year leading up to the election. You took down Andrew Scheer's director of communications, Brock Harrison, and the digital director, Stephen Taylor, and you got under the skin of Catherine Marshall, Hamish Marshall's wife. Considering that we are in this global crisis, this black swan event that is driving an economic downturn and a social upheaval in how we interact with each other in our daily lives, how relieved are you that Andrew Scheer is not our prime minister? Oh, I can't. I can't. There are not words to tell you how relieved I am that that man is not prime minister. That guy shouldn't even be elected dog catcher. You know, we're at a time now when more than ever before in my lifetime, we need to put aside our partisan politics and come together, work together, and, and form a, a united leadership and work to ensure the safety of our citizens. And what do we have? That idiot, Andrew Scheer, thinking it's still the election campaign from last fall and just standing there throwing spitballs. Andrew Scheer's tactics are always the same. First, he, he complains when Trudeau doesn't finish something, like he's not completed a, a negotiation or not completed a plan. He complains that they would have completed it already. And then when Trudeau completes it, uh, Shear says, well, I would have done it better. Like, we all went to school, elementary school with morons like that. <laughs> you know, like, I could have done it better. 
He, the man has nothing to offer this country other than getting the hell off of our airwaves. Uh, the, the conservatives didn't even like him. They wanted him gone. I, I talked to conservatives who were friends of mine during the uh, election, and you know they, they hated Trudeau. They've always voted conservative, so they were going to vote conservative. Mm-hmm. But boy, did they dislike Sheer. Nobody predicted the, uh, you know, uh, the Al Jolson pictures showing up, you know, the, the black sure. pictures. Mm-hmm. Nobody predicted that coming up. And all of a sudden, here was Andrew Scheer, who's basically a, a seat warmer for actually more serious contenders for the leadership. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, the guy's got a chance at being prime minister. And I can't imagine this m- microcephalic idiot actually trying to lead this country during this time. He is more concerned with party politics than he is with the country that the party is supposedly uh, you know, concerned with, with governing. Nobody likes this guy. You know, polls showed after the last election that the Conservative Party was more popular than Andrew Scheer. That yeah. every time Andrew Scheer put out a new set of ads, people, uh, people's uh, view of him dropped further. So Andrew Scheer was actually an albatross around the neck of the Conservative Party. And here he is, you know, he could do so much good for the Conservative Party. Like, look at Doug Ford in Ontario. Mm -hmm. Who would have predicted? You know, his his biggest goals since being Premier has been basically based around booze. Yeah. You, know, like, you know, putting booze in corner stores, making uh, breaking the, the, the contract with the beer store yeah. and then making it legal for dogs to sit on restaurant patios. Like what government <laughs> decides that that is one of the first things they're going to do? Yeah. What government. I mean, there's no dog lobby. That was that was paying him <laughs> off. You know, there was no no dogs marching on Queens Park demanding this right. And just like. He uh, put in legislation for bars to open at nine o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Like, I, I don't recall there being any protests by people saying, I want the bar open at nine in the morning, because most of the people who want that at nine in the morning are passed out face down in their own vomit. Exactly. <laughs> you know, he, he, his priorities were completely wrong. He hurt uh, families uh, with autistic kids. Mm-hmm. He canceled yeah. the uh, guaranteed income pilot project leaving people who thought that they were okay for a while completely at loose ends. He, you know, typical modern conservative uh, taking shots at the most vulnerable people. And then he came around and he's working with the federal government. They're praising each other. That's Mm. what we need. And then you got the federal conservatives and Andrew Scheer continuing to act like that kid in school who was always picking his nose that everybody avoided. Um, you know, he he doesn't have enough political savvy. And he resigned. What's he doing? What's he swinging for? Yeah, he resigned like, as well, party I, leader. Maybe he's thinking that they'll change their mind. <laughs> That's a hail mary pass if I've ever heard one. But you know, it is it is unreal how much has changed in the world since that last federal election. Like in retrospect, the stakes of that election were so high, which we're only realizing now. Ed. Ed, are we actually in a world where people are flushing shreds of T-shirts down the toilet after using those shreds of T-shirts as toilet paper? Is this humanity in 2020, Ed? No, no. We're in a world where people are attempting to flush <laughs> cut-up pieces of T-shirt 
uh, down the toilet and winding up blocking their toilets because <laughs> toilets, you ever notice toilet tissue is even the two, three ply, it's rather thin. Yeah. It's not, you know, uh, how often do you wear t-shirts uh, that are that are three ply, you know, like very rarely. There's a reason for the different thicknesses. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's like it's like they were, were it's after the apocalypse or something. Like go to the store and buy some toilet paper. Now I recognize that a lot of it was sold out, but it kept getting restocked. Yeah. So I don't and and they took the time to. This is the thing. They took the time to actually cut up the sheets. That's the thing. Like they had enough active cerebral uh, power to think yeah. about cutting it up into sheets, but not very, enough to, to think that this isn't going to flush down the toilet. Yeah. Very premeditated, right? Well, it, it's one of those things where somebody's half smart, which is more dangerous than, than being not smart at all. Um, and yeah, we're in it, but, but listen, we're in a time also where the media, uh, not all the media, but too much of the media has been remarkably irresponsible. They take statements by people who, who say that something could happen. The worst mm. could happen. The most recent was, I saw the Guardian uh, website said, 22,000 Canadians could die of COVID-19. That's the headline. And we're mm. in a world now where people only read the, read the headlines. And if the headline depresses them, they're not reading the article. Sure. And headlines are not written by the person who wrote the article. They're written by an editor who wants people to read the article. But yeah. if you read just underneath it, it says, if no uh, precautions are taken, blah, blah, blah. Basically, if we had done nothing, that many people could have died. But the media is trumpeting this 22,000 Canadians could die. Yeah, and you know what? Wings could grow out of my anus. Um, could, you know, doesn't mean anything. Could is, is a meaningless word. Could, you know what? A rogue asteroid could end all life on Earth. Uh, in two, th two or three seconds uh, sure. from now, and we wouldn't know. Could is meaningless. What we have to look at is what is actually happening. Yeah. Not the worst case scenario, not scaring people. There's people online who say it's good to scare people because then it makes them uh, obey. It makes them follow the precautions. It's like, oh, really? Why don't you tell that to people who are having heart attacks? Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell that to people with anxiety conditions who are freaking out? I have a friend whose friend had an anxiety condition, killed himself because he mm. couldn't stand the anxiety being spread by the people who are trying to spread panic. Yeah. And panic is not good. Concern is when you engage, you know, your cerebellum. Panic is when you're just running around screaming. But Ed, I mean, proliferating panic, it's not just the media. I mean, n no one in the media was telling people to go hoard toilet paper when we actually produce toilet paper in Canada. Like, there is something innate about mobs of people stirring themselves up into a panic, right? No. No? That, no, I think that they were responding to the, the, the fear-mongering and, you know, and the, the, the unknown. There's nothing yeah. more scary than the unknown for people. Why toilet paper, then? Why toilet? You know what? I can't fault them for that. Because I've always said that if there was like a nuclear war and all of civilization was destroyed, but I had toilet paper, I'd be okay. <laughs> but if all of civilization, if, if, if civilization, if there's like some remnant of civilization still around and yeah. we're rebuilding the world, but I don't have toilet paper, I want to, I want out. Okay. Like that, that's the one thing I need in life really is toilet paper. 
Um, so I understand people, they thought they were gonna, they were being told conflicting things like, you mm -hmm. may be locked in your house for 18 months. So mm -hmm. of course they're going and buying all that toilet paper. Uh, you know, of course, the thing that's stupid also is that they should have been hoarding facial tissue because COVID-19 is an upper respiratory uh, infection mm. or, or virus. And so you'd be coughing and sneezing and stuff a lot more than, than you would be crapping. Yeah. Um, so they should have actually been, I mean, yeah, in a pinch, uh, rolls of butt wipe can be used for, for sneezing in upper respiratory, but like it wasn't even a sensible thing. And, and now you go to supermarkets and it's, just, it's too eerie. I went yesterday to a supermarket to get some stuff. People walking around in masks, different kinds of masks, some mm -hmm. with big face shields in front of them yeah. as well. And, you know, it's almost like there's a status symbol now. It's like, ha, you only got a mask. I got a face shield and a mask. <laughs> um, and then other people walking around with nothing, which is yeah. fine um, as long as you you know, maintain social distance and stuff. But mm. I, it was, I, I was going to get some, some vegetables. Um, and it was like parsley or something. And, you know, that's all in grocery stores. It's all sort of stacked together. Mm -hmm. There's a guy standing there with his hands, pulling one thing out, looking at it, doesn't like it, puts it back, pulls another one out, looks at it, puts it back. It's like, oh, you know what? I no longer need parsley. <laughs> You can do without it this week. <laughs> you're in grocery store. You you got to do is eyeball the stuff that you that you want before taking it. And once you've touched it, it's yours. Okay. Yeah. It's like if you break something in a store, it's yours. Once you've touched, it's yours. Take it. Do not put it back. So you've got people who are on one end looking like we're in the hot zone, wearing practically hazmat suits. Yeah. And then you've got other people who don't seem to realize anything is going on. And you have to keep, and this, it's almost like a video game, trying to keep six feet away from people who are, who, who are moving with rolling carts. Like <laughs> some, somebody should make eventually a COVID video game where yeah. you're, in a, you're in a grocery store and you have to stay six feet away from people um, and people are moving their carts at various speeds um, sometimes with their heads down, looking at their shopping list and not seeing you. And, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's so nerve wracking. And then you wait in line and they've got lines to keep people separated from each other. Mm -hmm. But some people don't obey that. Yeah, and, it's weird. And you've got to be the one to say, uh, hey, back off. But <laughs> by the time you say that, you've turned to face them and they're breathing in your face. So <laughs> if they had something, you now got it. Yeah. So it's, I mean, nothing has sh shown the more, you know, how stupid the world really is. I, I thought that, that, that Twitter was the ultimate in revealing just how stupid human beings are. But I think the reaction to COVID-19 has outdone Twitter. Yeah, that was actually going to be my next question for you is from a cultural vantage point. I mean, you always got uh, eyes on where the culture is going. What does this say about us just as people or as Canadians in terms of how we're behaving. I mean, I think the supermarket situation is really interesting because you are talking about two different groups of people acting in complete opposite manners, but still coexisting in the same space. Uh, well, it says that some of us are smart and some of us are stupid and the majority are kind of somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, it says that, I mean, you look at for a while, everyone was blaming millennials. 
forgetting that millennials aren't kids anymore. Millennials are having having their own kids and getting mortgages. Yeah, we're pushing 40. Yeah, like yeah, millennials are not children anymore. Um, it was basically Gen Z and Gen Y who were dancing and having parties together because as far as they were concerned, the, all the in, uh, indications were that they wouldn't die if they got it. Like yeah. they were less likely to get COVID-19, but if they got it, they weren't going to die. So, you know, they figure, hey, let's just go party. And they were putting up things like boomer remover on Twitter as if, it, you know, celebrating a generation dying in, you know, gasping for breath, these morons. Um, but it, it turns out that not only is Gen Z uh, the problem, but so are boomers. Because mm. you think about it, from Generation X uh, onwards, people have been getting more and more used to uh, communicating with each other through electronic means. Right. You know, we, we can form fellowships, we can form community, we can form friendships, and never, have, never be in the same physical space as somebody. That's not unusual for us. But for boomers, it is unusual. For <laughs> boomers, the idea of any kind of community, of hanging out with friends, for comfort, for company, whatever, they have to do it in person. Yeah. And so they've been getting together on, you know, taking walks and so on and gathering, um, you know, hastening their own doom in some cases, but they're doing it because the means by which most of the rest of us are content to communicate with each other now doesn't work for them. Who knows if they even have a, a computer that works and, you know, they can't call their grandkids over to, mm -hmm. to, to show them how to use the computer because that's the grandkids are probably smart enough to realize I can't come into your place. Yeah. I might be bringing something in. So the boomers who can't stand, you know, I mean, listen, they probably, they've been married to each other for 40, 50 years. And now they got to spend all that time together alone in the house. I don't mm. blame them for wanting to get out and get a breath of fresh air, but you know, they, they don't do it in smart ways because we're yeah. not told, we're not told never to leave our house. Yeah. What we're told is leave it as little as possible. Mm -hmm. And when you do go out, just go for things that are necessary and then keep a, a distance from somebody. Keep a, you know, a good six, seven feet uh, different, uh, distance from somebody and uh, make sure you wash your hands. And when you're out, uh, don't touch your eyes. Even if you're wearing gloves, don't touch your face, don't touch your eyes. But we're not being told we have to stay indoors. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but then you've got the people who march around um, it's usually men, sadly enough, um, walking around, uh, waving their member metaphorically, showing how I don't have to worry about this. I don't need to worry about all this stuff from the government. It's all lies. I don't have to worry. I'm tough. You know, and they, they just, and all this is just an overreaction. Blah, blah, blah. And I think sometimes when you go whole hog with the media and everybody else is is taking things in some cases, too seriously. It's very serious. Mm -hmm. But, but uh, you know, there was that doctor who, uh, was, uh, who created the, the SARS uh, antidote, um, who, when talking about COVID-19 a few months ago, said, uh, you know, millions of people around the world could die from it. You know, it's like, about like bodies in the street, like the Black Plague. And that he got quoted over and over. And, you know, someone heard it from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone who heard it from someone. Right. Didn't read the article. And, you know, the article said, if we do nothing, 
this could happen. Well, nobody's doing nothing. And then you got the people who were saying that um, we're on the same curve as Italy was. It's like, um, okay, maybe for like an hour. But the fact is, things are very different in Italy. First of all, they've got a much larger percentage of their population is elderly than here in Canada. I think they're about 6%, 7% more uh, elderly people than here in Canada. Secondly, um, how do do Italians tend to greet each other? Kisses on each cheek. Yeah. As opposed to our handshake. Saliva, face right in there, breathing right in your face. Yeah. Um, So there's that. There's also uh, the fact that, and people don't want to talk about it because they think, oh, it's making you racist. But there was an article uh, in the New Yorker, which is a fairly reputable publication, a couple Mm -hmm. of years ago about how the uh, Italian uh, fashion industry was taking people from China to, to basically make sweatshops because people around the world want want open their jacket and have it say made in Italy. Right. Thinking, right, right. That some, thinking that some old man, some old artisan was sitting there hand stitching it. When meanwhile, it's the same, same people who are making stuff in China are just being moved to Italy and making it the same way. There was even daily flights between um, the city that's the fashion capital, the fashion con- you know, industry construction capital or whatever, mm-hmm. manufacturing capital, and places like Wuhan province. Yeah. Okay, so, and, why didn't the, and why didn't Italy know earlier that this was coming from, you know, that there were infected people coming from China? Because the Chinese mafia, according to this article, has a lot to do with bringing over the workers from China. Oh, really? Okay, interesting. And they take a piece of it. And what they were doing when the Chinese people got sick, the workers got sick or died, they just threw them in the water. (laughs) They just disposed of the bodies and kept the passports. Wow. People weren't really aware of how fatal and dangerous this thing was. That's what was happening in Italy. That's not happening here. So yeah. any comparison of Italy and here is just plain stupid. Do you think that the panic will get worse as we see more cases? Or do you think it'll actually mellow out a little bit when we see more cases, we see recovery, we see that, you know, we've social distanced in a way that we haven't overrun our medical capacity in the different provinces, just in the country nationally? Do you think it's actually going to get better in terms of mellowing out the panic once we actually start seeing more cases? No, I think we're going to have a different kind of panic. An economic panic? Well, the economic panic, the economic panic, I wouldn't even call it a panic because it's a reality. Mm -hmm. We'll get to that. The panic will be that people are going to get sick and tired of staying indoors. Yeah. They're going to start to go crazy. People like to be productive. They like to work. They like to earn a paycheck, but they also like to work. They like to do things. Yeah. To, to feel restrained, that's the next level of panic. That's going to come out not as panic, but as just increased anxiety, which is going to manifest itself in who knows how many ways. This has been terrible for people who already had bad mental health. Um, you know, there's it. Sure, it's more anxiety. Absolutely. It's, it's it, you know, and the projections of the number of people who could die those are projections. Those are imaginary people right now. Mm-hmm. But real people every single day now are suffering economically. Yeah. There's people who are, they don't know how they're going to keep a roof over their head, food on the table for themselves, for their kids. You know, they, they don't know how, they, if they have medications they need to take, they don't have a drug plan. 
How are they going to afford their medications? We're talking about people who work at service jobs who aren't Nelson Rockefeller, if I could use a very old term. Um, <laughs> you know, we're talking about people who are vulnerable, who live check to check and yeah. who aren't getting a check. And the government has stepped up and they're, they're putting things in place so people can get money. But that takes some time, too. And what are these people supposed to do in the meantime when they don't have any money for food? Yeah. Some landlords have been good with, about rent. And the, the truth is that I don't know, you know, the rules in various provinces, but in Ontario, you cannot pay rent for at least a year and they still can't kick you out. Yeah, it's something similar here. Yeah, like you with rent controls and, and protections for tenants, um, you cannot pay the rent and uh, it takes them forever in court to get you out. Mm -hmm. But food, you, you, you can't do that. Like yeah. that's, you know, and so people are suffering terribly. And so concerns about the economy are concerns about people. Concerns about the economy are the, are exactly the same, are on the exact same plane morally as concerns about health. Sure. Because it is still concerns about the state of the existence of these human beings. Yeah. And so it is not, there's not a, a binary here where you need to either be concerned about the virus and people's health or be concerned about the economy. You need to be concerned about both. I mean, maybe it would be easier if what we were going through was having to, to, to take up arms and fight against people as evil as Nazis. Maybe having something concrete like that would be easier for people to understand and rationalize and rally around. Mm -hmm. But we're fighting something that we can't even see with the naked eye. Yeah. So, Ed, in, in this fight, like, like when we're talking about this big fight, it clearly is a black swan event. It's, it's history making. It's, it's unique in its own way. How do you see it changing us as Canadians? Does it change us as Canadians? I mean, we've already talked about some of the worst behavior that we've seen, but there's also been some great behavior. There's been communities helping each other out. Will this event, will this crisis change anything in our identity? Well, first, what I want to say is that what has changed right now is the internet, which has primarily been used for uh, adult entertainment and um, <laughs> to divide people. Yeah. I mean, the internet has really been used as, as a tool, a wedge to divide people, mm -hmm. has actually during this process been used as a tool to bring people together. Absolutely. I mean, there has been so much goodwill, uh, 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 so many people doing networking shows on, uh, you know, through uh, Zoom and Skype and, and Google FaceTime or whatever the hell. Like, it's brought us together. Yeah. And we've found ways to connect with each other. We've mm -hmm. actively worked to connect with each other through the Internet, yeah. which I think was, you know, the people who created the Internet uh, I think that was their ultimate goal, their dream mm -hmm. for the thing rather than what it was, it's been used for. So that's been a positive. Um, but how are we going to be when this is all over? We're going to be exactly as we were before. Mm -hmm. Maybe worse uh, in some ways in the sense that you ever go to a funeral, Mo, and uh, you see people you haven't seen in years and you say, you know, we really should get together. No, seriously, this time, we really should get together. Right, yeah. And, you know, no, seriously, this, this funeral, it's told us, you know, you can't take for granted. We really should get together. Yeah. And then other people spout other various profound things. All of a sudden, uh, life, what's really important in life, comes into very sharp focus. Sure. And all of that lasts for about an hour. 
yeah. until after the funeral and yeah. then it all goes away. Yeah. Um, that's what's happening now. And I think that uh, when we, when this is lifted, I think it's going to be lifted in stages. First mm-hmm. of all, yeah. I don't think it's all going to be just one, you know, everybody run, can run outdoors. I think it's going to be in stages. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we're going to slowly start to get back to normal, but I think that people are going to go out and when they finally have money coming in again, um, it's going to be like the eighties as far as people buying things. Yeah. I think because people are going to want to buy themselves rewards for being good and something, a salve, because we have a society that tells us that if you want to feel better, buy something. Right. Um, yeah. And so people are going to be buying things. As soon yeah. as they've got uh, financial security again and stability, people are going to be buying things. People are going to want to go out dancing and go to clubs. I don't Mm -hmm. think they will necessarily. I mean, the younger ones probably will. People are going to be wanting to socialize. They're going to be wanting to forget about sadness and heaviness. And they're going to be wanting to, it'll be somewhat like the hedonism of the 70s um, and the spending of the 80s, I think is what's going to happen. I mean, places like movie theaters, it's going to be slow for people to go back to that. Mm -hmm. I think those, those businesses will gross, you know, will come back slowly, especially since that business was slowly ebbing off already. Yeah. Uh, people were watching it at home. If I was an owner of a theater chain, I'd f- feel nervous because more and more people are now comfortable with just watching movies at home. I think you're absolutely right. I think the things where you can get together with people and socialize, even things like a live show, you know, it's not you are watching a show, but the the idea of live entertainment, so not a movie, but whether it's a comedy show or the act of getting together with people and going somewhere, I, I think people are, are already starting to crave that, to be honest. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if people want to do that right away. I, I think I think you're right in saying that it's going to be lifted in, in stages, the social distancing protocols. But will people you know, have to be told, okay, go to the restaurant now. Please go to the restaurant. We need to, you know, start fueling these businesses again or will people get to a point where they are you know stomping and getting in line to get to these places i don't know i think that's going to happen is we're going to see restaurants removing some tables Mm -hmm. so that there's more distance between each table so the capacity of the restaurant will be smaller but the number of people going there will be smaller as well um you know we will see places that are removing um tables and play things that would have people closer together, um, they'll be removed so the people mm-hmm. can be further apart just for our short-term psychological comfort. Yeah. Um, and I think people, I mean, people have been encouraged to go to restaurants now. A lot of restaurants, their dining room's not open, but they're open for takeout. Mm-hmm. And uh, I try to take advantage of that because I want to keep these people working. Absolutely, yeah. That's part of our civic responsibility as Canadians is to try to keep businesses healthy if we can, if you can afford it, um, it you know, and, and you can do it in a safe way, it's our responsibility to help out businesses just as it's our responsibility to, to stay indoors um, and keep, uh, you know, six, seven feet from people and things, things of that nature. It, it, those are health precautions. But sure. for economic health precautions, we really need to, to, to do what we can. A lot of businesses are trying to stay open as best they can during this. So if they are, try to help them out. Mm -hmm. If you can afford it, if you feel secure, 
do it. Try to help them out. That is also a duty of Canadians that's not being trumpeted enough because people say, oh, you care about his money. It's like, really? What do you, what do you, what do you get your food for? Like, yeah. is it barter? You know, are you, what are you, are you in an alley on your knees in order to, to get food? Is it that kind of barter? What do you think money's for? Your money, money buys food, you stupid people. <laughs> Let's talk about one more sector that is, that was suffering pre-COVID and now is particularly suffering. And that's media outlets, especially local media outlets. They, they're going out of business. They are downsizing even some of the major media outlets. It's a tough time because in a lot of ways, media is being consumed more than ever. And yet the business model of presenting journalism to people is just not working. Has the media landscape in this country ever been so volatile? And what are the risks here of especially losing you know, local media? Well, the risks of losing local media is you don't know what's going on in your neighborhood, in your city, your town. And quite mm-hmm. frankly, what's happening nationally usually affects you less directly than what happens in your particular jurisdiction. Just like, like, you know, municipal politicians, most people don't even pay them any attention. It's not very prestigious. But municipal politicians are actually the ones who day to day have more to do with the quality of your life mm-hmm. than, than, munici- than uh, provincial or federal politicians. Okay, so... Um, and you have to talk, separate news media from media, entertainment media. Sure. Okay. Now news media. Yeah. Losing local. We've lost so many local papers. Mm -hmm. Uh, we lost so many local news broadcasts and you know, those formed a sense of community and we've lost a set. We've lost too much of that sense of community. We've become uh, just a bunch of walking silos. We can program only what we want to wa- watch, when we want to watch it, where we want to watch it. Yeah. Do that with music. We can do that with where we get our news from. You know, we, 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 the common experiences and common sources of information aren't, they're not there anymore. Yeah. That's bad as far as I'm concerned for a country. A country that is made up of a bunch of individuals as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, a, a country that is a nation, mm-hmm. not a great thing. So it's important. Those local newscasts are important. Now, the broadcasters are, they're cheap as hell, first of all. Mm-hmm. And most of them are run by people who have never run broadcasting things in their life. They're run by MBAs. And, you know, MBAs are taught, it's drummed into their head, reduce risk, reduce risk, reduce risk, reduce costs, reduce risk. Well, when you're in a creative business like the media, there comes a, 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 a terminal point when you have reduced risk so much that you're not producing anything of any value. Right, yeah. That's like saying, uh, we need to reduce the number of chickens. We need to reduce the number of chickens. And then you complain about the fact that you have less eggs to sell. <laughs> you know, and, and there, there's, I mean, there is uh, one, uh, Bell Media is run by somebody uh, who used to be the head of Universal Music. Mm-hmm. He was in the entertainment business. He knows the entertainment business. He's yeah. been in it for years. Okay, so I looked at that and I say, oh, somebody who knows something, okay? But you've got others that just, they just think that rather than trying to create value and mm-hmm. create programming of value, they'd rather just cut staff. Well, yeah. eventually, what have you got? Nothing. 
You're not creating anything of value. You're just buying things from the U.S. And quite frankly, I think we have enough U.S. osmosis, uh, you know, as it is. We need more stories about Canada and Canadians because never before has Canada and U.S. been so uh, diverged in our, our values and our culture. Mm-hmm. And we, we need to see that reinforced. Listen, people know more or think they know more about how the American government works and how American jurisd- uh, jurisprudence works or the court system than they do Canadian. Um, yeah. I think they'd be surprised when they go to court and they see uh, lawyers wearing gowns, you know, those, those old style <laughs> gowns. They yeah. think, What's this? I never saw that on TV. Yeah. And that's because we don't do, focus enough television on who we are. And that's mm. because a lot of the t- stuff that used to be focused on who we are was pure crap. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't television telling us who we are. It was telling us who we need to be. It was telling us who we should be. Mm-hmm. Now it's much more reflective of who we are. Yeah. And we need more of it. And that was kind of the beauty of much music in its heyday, right? Like when it was really good, the sort of the much music that I grew up on was that it, it was interesting and kind of weird sometimes. And it had faces that were recognizable everyday faces. There was a Canadian element to it. Uh, I mean, much music in its heyday, I thought, had incredible programming. And they were able to balance not just playing music videos, but having on-air personalities versus we're just going to play U.S. reruns. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, listen, I, I could talk for hours because I was there. <laughs> of course, that's why I'm bringing it up. Yeah, I, I was on the deck of the Titanic and I saw the, the, the glacier and I kept saying, there's a glacier there and nobody was listening because this was my first example of dealing with management that had no idea how to actually manage uh, media. You know, they, they, instead of being what much music was, which was unique, authentic in the moment, there were no rehearsals. We didn't have time for rehearsals. We weren't told what to say before we went on air, other, yeah. than, other than you need to read this PSA or this thing during, that, during your time on the air. Um, we weren't, what we wanted to do wasn't vetted. We would mm-hmm. plan that ourselves and tell nobody or only tell the crew that needed to be involved. Um, because much music hired people and then like they were careful who they hired mm-hmm. and then they let those people be those people. Yeah. And you looked at you when you watched much music, you saw stuff that you knew that what was happening on screen, the people who were there making it happen on screen were discovering what was happening the exact same time you were, mm. you know, it was a shared experience because yeah. we didn't have it planned out. And a lot of stuff, even if we had plans, would go sideways and we would just go with it. Sure. You know, we'd open the window and you never know what you're going to find there, who you're going to talk to. <laughs> there, was a, there was authenticity. It was real. And the VJs, everybody had a VJ they could relate to. Mm-hmm. They could see themselves in, you know? And then they went and uh, after I quit, they started hiring spokesmodels and telling them what to say. Right. And this is no knock on those VJs because the fact that they were able to even work under those conditions, I, I would have lasted about 35 seconds. Um, but so I give them credit. They had a different job to do than we did and they did their best at it. Mm-hmm. But they, they first canceled snow job and then tree toss and all these weird things that made much music odd and appealing yeah. because it was so self-effacing and real. They mm-hmm. canceled all those things because the person in charge 
didn't want to put the effort in. Um, and when you lose the things that distinguish yourself from other channels, you lose the soul of your channel. And people w weren't tuning to much music because they wanted to watch reruns of Gossip Girl. Right, CW exactly. Programming. Yeah. They tuned to it because they wanted to see my friend Bradford doing something goofy or my friend George Strombolopoulos doing something, my buddy Rick Campanelli or mm. uh, Rachel Perry um, or, or, or me or Master T. Um, they wanted to see these people who were their friends. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a hangout. Yeah. You know, it was the first Google hangout. Um, <laughs> and it, imagine now if much music hadn't crapped the bed. Um, we can be more interactive now than we ever could have been in those days. Yeah. So much music, if it hadn't crapped the bed, could have been, the, the potential could have been realized so much more now. Yeah, absolutely. But instead, they ran away afraid and kept saying, people are watching music videos online now. They don't want to watch them on TV. And I kept saying, you don't understand. People weren't watching much music just for the videos. The videos were grist for the mill. They were yeah. watching for how we contextualized the videos, what we did around them, the antics, yeah. how we used them for inspiration to do stuff. And these idiots, they weren't listening. Listen, my fromage, um, when uh, myself and uh, Leanna Kay took it over from the people who had produced it before, and it mm -hmm. was before a show that was a ratings failure. Mm -hmm. When we took it over, we said, why are we making, why are we making fun of foreign videos and videos made by uh, people who clearly didn't have the budget to make a big video yeah. when we should be taking on the big guys who had the money to do it and still made stupid videos <laughs> and with bad messaging in it and that was just crap. Like, yeah. Let's take on the big boys. Yeah. So we did show, our, our fromage took videos that had been played to death. They were A-rotation videos. We took the videos that had been played to death for a year and used them. Yeah. And yet, we were their number one rated show. They would run four hours in a row of, of fromage. So stuff from four years ago, three years ago, two years than, than now. And we'd still get, our, our four-year-old show would still get the higher number than anything new they did that day. Hmm. And so the idea that people were only watching for view, music videos wasn't true. Yeah. Because fromage proved it was how you contextualized and presented them. Yeah. And these people... It was like talking to, to oatmeal. You know, it was the, the, the... You know, Ed, you bring up a really interesting point, though, about much music just as a whole in its heyday, because you, you said something about how if it was around today, it would be so well positioned in the market because it was so interactive. You, you could call in. You were talking to people on the streets. I mean, if you had the Internet where it is today with much then and with social media and everything else, it was in a perfect position to be this unique Canadian experience. Well, listen, we were much music. We were YouTube before there was YouTube. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. All those odd things that people like to see that are sort of unique and odd and, and, and people knew we were taking chances. Yeah. Listen, I used to call up the vice president during my shift without any warning during his dinner. Uh, Cause I would come <laughs> on at night. Right. So, yeah. so my, my, my regular show was seven till nine. And if I, there was something that, that, that pissed me off that they wanted me to do, like a PSA, public service announcement they wanted me to read, or an advertisement for a movie or something. And I didn't want to do it because I thought it was shameful or that the, the grammar was terrible in it. I would just call him at home, live on the air with no warning. Yeah. 
Okay. And people knew this guy did not have a warning that this call was coming. Yeah. So people knew we were taking risks with what we were doing. <laughs> and what do you see on YouTube? You see people doing things that are authentic and now, now upping the ante. Like they do things that are foolishly risky, like right. riding their bike off a roof and eating detergent and licking toilet seats. Like just, just because now um, if you're not, if you don't, ex if you don't have a video on YouTube or on the internet, you don't exist as right. far as, you know, society uh, is concerned. But we were positioned to own the internet. If yeah. these idiots had only listened to me. So, Ed, is, is that your mission for FU Politics and the FU Network? Obviously, it doesn't have the budget of, of these big broadcasters, but is that sort of the essence of what you're trying to do? Yeah, I'm trying to bring back that, because uh, the CRTC said that the broadcasters can spend all their Canadian content money at night in prime time. So all the daytime shows that were much more friendly and, and relatable, gone. Mm -hmm. That whole tier of broadcasting that was much music, gone. And that, that, that two-way communication, that feeling that everybody belonged, that it belonged mm -hmm. to Canada, and that no matter who you were or how long you've been in this country or how long your ancestors have been in this country or, or your religion or anything or your lack of religion, everybody belonged, yeah. you know? Um, that's what I want to recreate with uh, Fun the FU Network. And as you mentioned, FU stands for For Us. It also stands for an attitude. FU is an attitude, and that's what sure. we're saying to mainstream media, but it's, it's for us and for you as well. Mm. And, uh, you know, FU Politics, uh, I started as the first division because I felt that it was a political season and people were getting really bad information mm. and getting the, the mainstream media was sensationalizing things and not covering aspects of topics that need to be t covered. So I found good people like, you know, our colleagues and, and like yourself, I approached and said, want to have you guys do, do stuff on this network. And, you know, we, you mentioned we have no budget. We really have no budget. Mm -hmm. And uh, since, you know, we've been uh, supported by Patreon, um, and I'll give that now, patreon.com slash FU Network TV, which is a monthly subscription, starts at a buck, five bucks, whatever. Um, but that's not a lot of money that we're getting there right now. Mm -hmm. And we've been losing money since the, the downturn has happened, which I understand completely. I send people a note saying, thanks for supporting us as long as you did. I hope you come back when things are better for you. But mm -hmm. we had no budget. What we had is the same thing much music had, which is ingenuity. Um, I've always found you can either have a lot of money in television or you can have ingenuity. Because yeah. um, when you have no money, you have to think differently about how to present the product. And it mm. makes the product different. The entire mindset is different and you create something that is totally unique yeah. and its own thing. And that's, I mean, we launched uh, FU Politics uh, and in August, we thought we'd launch it quietly um, and then we would tune it up as we went. The, the day we launched, we were uh, number 18 in the top 20 political podcasts in Canada on iTunes charts. Yeah. Like we made the top 20. 10 days later, we're top five. And then they started a new category, which was politics and culture. We were number one. And you know who, <laughs> who we were beating? We were beating Global TV. Yeah. We were beating CBC. We were beating CTV. We were beating, we, we were beating BBC, for crying out loud. <laughs> like, and the, those guys have so much money. Yeah. Um, and yet what they don't have is programming that connects with people in the same way. Mm -hmm. We, with, with no money, but just knowing how to make programming, knowing how to target programming, knowing what people really wanted to see 
and, and listened to and knowing what was missing, um, we were able to climb those charts. Yeah. Far faster than we ever thought we would. And Ed, I love that. I love that. And I think that's why we are kindred spirits in a way, because we share that ethos of, hey, like we're just swinging for the fences. We don't have much to show for it, but we're going to build something cool and unique and and fill in the gaps, the big gaps, as they may be, perhaps in the uh, podcasting landscape or media landscape in this country. Well, yeah, it, it will be going. I mean, FU Networks, we're going to go to FU Music next uh, as, a, as a partner to FU Politics. And that's going to be a lot like much music. Cool. There was, already, there was already plans afoot, but then this whole thing happened. Yeah. And we had to take a, a stop, but there will be more fromage. Um, oh, and it. there will be uh, more opportunity for independent bands to have their videos shown, yeah, commented on, and we're going to be looking for new VJs as well as some old uh, faces that uh, you know, f- familiar faces that you remember from much music. Oh yeah, okay, cool. We're going to be we want to build things that you know naturally create something like the tree toss, which yeah. started out with just Steve Anthony one morning saying, "Let's just take the tree." Because the cameras could plug in anywhere in the building. Plug yeah. your camera in up on the second floor uh, balcony. We're gonna, I'm going to throw the tree and see if I can get it in the dumpster. <laughs> like that was, he just thought of it then. Yeah. And then it wound up becoming something that was a four-hour special that we did where the tree was, there was a whole story behind the training for throwing the tree. And the tree was loaded with explosives. Yeah. And um, we would throw it and, set, and the explosives would go off as the tree was in mid-flight. And <laughs> oh, I'm, I, I remember. It was amazing. Yeah, we turned it into an entire thing and it was really about nothing at all yeah. except <laughs> entertainment. And that all came from Steve Anthony being able to just go and do it. Yeah. So that's what much music was about. You have an idea, just go and do it. Grab a camera person, go out and shoot something. We just did stuff. Yeah. And nowadays, everything is focus group to death until there's nothing left of anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, the, you know what the worst testing um, focus group TV show ever was? What? Seinfeld. Really? Seinfeld had the lowest marks ever. Wow. Focus group. And, which goes to show you, focus groups mean nothing. <laughs> They're, they, you, you, people, you, yeah. you put people in a room and say, do you like this? They, they don't know if you want them to, don't want them to. And yeah. quite frankly, people don't know what they want to watch until you give it to them. Mm-hmm. And then they say, hey, this is good. You know, there's a, you think of the shows that have been uh, before Game of Thrones. If you had polled people, I don't think you would have heard people saying, um, I want to see something like Game of Thrones. I want to see, you know, this medieval thing with dragons. Yeah. Because people who were watching it were people who traditionally wouldn't read those fantasy novels. So they would never have answered that, you yeah. know, before Westworld, which is another great show. If someone said, would you like to see a remake of the 1970s TV uh, movie with Yul Brynner? People would have said no. <laughs> and now it's, it's a hit. It's a great show. Yeah. And that's the thing. If you're a creative person, you got to go with your gut about what people want to see. And you can't go by what people tell you they want to see because people don't know. All they're going to tell you is regurgitate what they're already watching. Yeah. In which case, why do it? There's already something on there that they're watching that's exactly the same. Mm-hmm. You, you have to lead and you, you, know, you have to look at the, uh, where public interest is. And you've got to look at what's missing. And you've got to look at what people are reading and what people are listening to and how people are talking. Jay Switzer, who used to run Chum Television, um, may he rest in peace, passed away too early 
uh, a year ago at 60. Uh, he used to tell me how he would take the subway once or twice a week. He ran Trump television, which had numerous channels. And he said, I want to hear what people are talking about. Right. And you're not going to find that amongst network executives now. They don't want to know what people are talking about. Yeah. Because they're scared to death to hear it. Yeah. Listen, only in Canada can you be too popular because why am I not on TV now? Why am I on online? Even though, uh, I, you know, people call me a national icon and I'm kind of a household name. And, and the U.S. has been rebooting and returning shows. Yeah. Because people have a relationship with these shows and these characters. The reason I'm not on in Canada is because I actually had one, a comedy network. This is years ago. It's not the same people running it now, but they once told me, they told me, you know, because you were on much music, Ed, we don't know how to reposition you for comedy. What? <laughs> told the person, you know what? I would respect you more if you just told me to, 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 to go F myself yeah. than giving me a story like that. And then also told by some, by a broadcaster who brought me in for two meetings and then said, we did a little testing. We found out your brand is stronger than ours. And so you will overwhelm our brand. And my thought is, don't you care? Television is a popularity contest. Yeah. Who cares is how many eyeballs are there? You care about your stupid brand? Your brand will meld with my brand and yeah. will benefit from it. You stupid people. Like only in Canada can you be too popular to be on a medium that is based on popularity. Yeah. Only in Canada. Yeah. You know, because in the United States, making television is a business. In Canada, making television is the cost of doing business. Right. They make TV here only because they have to make a certain number of hours and spend a certain amount of money in order for them to be able to buy the CR CRTC to be allowed to bring in and buy the American shows yeah. that they really want to play. So they yeah. make, you know, the, the TV that the broadcasters make in Canada, they're getting better at it now. They're caring more now. But for a long time, especially, and still to, to this day, it's kind of like when you ask your mother if you can go to the movies with your friends and she says, yeah, but you got to take your little brother. You know, it, it's, it's like that kind of thing. You don't really yeah. want your brother there, but you got to take him if you want to get to go to the movies with your friends. Yeah, yeah. On American TV in this country, you got to put some money into Canadian TV. And that's why it's not a business. It's the cost of doing business. Right. So that's my diatribe. No, I appreciate it. I love it. And I want to point out, we have to wrap it up here, but I do want to point out one thing. You are my first non-Vancouver guest on this program, and I'll probably do a little more as, as we have remote recordings. And I think listening to you talk about the media, listening to you talk about the panic over COVID has been very important. But I also want to point out that FU Politics does have a really strong connection to Vancouver. Hafiz, Hafiz Narani, one of the producers of your show, Mensplaining. He's a family friend of mine. Kyla Lee, Andy Willis, two people I've had on this program. I was in a music video with Paul Doroshenko. So you do have some great Vancouver roots in your programming as well. Actually, we have more, I think we have more people from the West Coast. Uh, more yeah. personalities on our, 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 and we have our podcast is various series. It's under the umbrella FU politics, but there's various series mm -hmm. that cover as, you know, you know, issues and, and topics different ways. 
but I think we have more or at least equal number of people from uh, the West Coast as we do from, you know, Toronto. And yeah. we got people from Saskatchewan. We got people from all over the place, you know, Edmonton. Um, but we're, we're truly national in, in how we bring people in. And yeah, you know what? The, I think the largest contingency outside besides Toronto is Vancouver. Though Van- mm-hmm. We may have more people from Vancouver doing our shows than yeah. we do from Toronto, now that I think about it. Yeah, I mean, I've been on panels where I think everyone except you is from Vancouver. <laughs> I know, and I make you guys get up early because I don't want to do it late in the day. Uh, it's not that early for me. It's all good. Uh, but listen, I'm honored to be your first non-Vancouver guest, um, and uh, I want you to keep doing what you're doing because it's people like you that are going to, you know, you know, you say we don't have a lot to show for it. We don't right now. Mm-hmm. We're making a difference. Sure. By bit by bit, we're making a difference. We're chipping away, you know, and that's what's important because eventually this is how the internet works. You chip away, you chip away, you chip away. Then all of a sudden there's a flood of people who recognize there you are. Um, yeah. We're making a difference. Sure. And uh, that's exceptionally important. And it's a privilege um, and a responsibility when you go, when you broadcast yourself and your opinions, uh, it's a privilege and a responsibility. A lot of people don't realize that because now they can just grab their phone and say any stupid thing and broadcast it around the world. Yeah. But, but present yourself and your opinions and stuff to the world. That's a responsibility and a privilege and people need to take that seriously. And yeah. you do because your shows are always well-researched, uh, well thought out. They're, they're good shows. They're good information, and they're not the same thing that you can find a million other places. Well, well, thank you for that. And listen, I wasn't going to let you go without saying this. When I was in high school living on Broadview Drive in North Vancouver, I used to print out your editorials, some of which you did on the air on much, some of which you just posted online, and I'd study them. And there was like a period of time there, where I was also a real shit disturber on your message boards as well. And I, and I would write, I was, yeah, I was, I was a total troll on your message boards. I mean, I was 12 or whatever, but I, I would also write my own editorials and they were basically just ripoffs of yours, but I try to stretch my vocabulary to sound smart. And then I'd add in some curse words to try to sound edgy, even though I'm sure at the time, you know, my quote unquote editorials were neither smart nor edgy, but uh, you know, you had a big impact on me. I used, I used to tape fromage for as much as it used to be repeated on television. I would tape it on VHS and I would rewatch it and I would just be in awe of the space that you were creating as a commentator of culture. So, you know, I just want to say that it's first of all, I want to say that you've been incredibly kind to me for the last year. And on top of it all, for me to sit here and chat with you and be able to interview you and get your insights on so many things that are happening in the country right now. I am so grateful. So I appreciate your time and I appreciate you being here. Well, listen, I'm grateful that all these years later, people still want to hear what I have to say. (laughs) You know, it was equal that way. (laughs) And I forgive you for what you did on our message board, but I think you probably (laughs) helped animate them. So all that, that's all good. Thank you. And before I let you go, give me the last word, Ed. What do you want to tell Vancouver in these unprecedented times? Relax. We all know what sensible precautions to take. Don't blow it up beyond what it is. Don't read headlines that say, you know, could be 22,000 deaths. Always, when you're looking at headlines, 
always look for the word could, okay? And don't interpret that as will or most likely. Could is just so out in this, it, it doesn't mean anything. Because 22,000 Canadians could die. Also, 2,000 Canadians may be the cap. We don't know. And so just take sensible precautions. Be as patient as possible. Be as supportive as you can. If you know that some elderly people who don't have family supports who live near you, make it a habit of just knocking on the door to check to make sure they're okay, see if they need anything. And just relax, okay? This is a lousy time, but as a country and as a world, we've gotten through worse times than this. And we'll get through this too. And then we'll look back on it and it'll, we'll probably have some fond memories of things that we did, of people, you know, we got together with online and some of the things that happened and Bare Naked Ladies doing a song from four different places, but together, there's things that are going to come out of this that we'll look back on and say, you know, there's some good memories from then too. So just stay the course. We don't have anybody bombing us. You know, like in World War II, like London had, we don't, you know, we don't have to face any of those things. We have to face staying in our homes. How, I mean, gee, that's so awful. Um, and if you've got economic problems, I feel for you. And please try to call your MP, call your MPP, try to find out as much as you can what you qualify for. Don't be intimidated by calling their offices. They work for you. I don't care, you know, they're big old big shots. No, they're not. They're your servant. So don't be intimidated. Don't be afraid. Don't feel like you're going to sound stupid because you don't know what to ask. That's their job is to help you. So call them and keep calling them and send them emails. Do what you can to find out what you're qualified for. And if you can help somebody else out during a difficult time, please do so because, you know, we're a country. Let's pull together and act like a country rather than what we're seeing in the U.S., which is states fighting with each other to get respirators and the federal government. No, we're not doing that here. We're Canada, okay? Canada isn't just a country. We're a community. We're just a, we're a community of 37 and a half million people. And let's act like it. We've been doing good so far. Let's keep, let's keep doing it. Try to find the fun that you can here. And if you have an anxiety condition, please, there are phone services in every region, crisis lines you can call. Please avail yourself of them. Don't feel that you're alone uh, in dealing with this. Don't, because you're not, because lots of people are feeling it. So don't feel stupid. Don't feel like a loser. Call a crisis line if you feel like you need it. That's what they're there for. The, the smartest people are the ones who realize that they need help and reach out to get it, okay? There. That's what I'm saying. I love it, Ed. Thank you so much. All right. And you can find me at Ed the Sock on Twitter, on uh, Facebook. It's uh, edthesock.funetworktv. And on uh, Instagram, it's ed underscore the underscore sock. So find me there. People, subscribe to FU Politics today and check out his incredible content, especially the criminally underrated show, Matter of Fact, produced by my friends Aishith and Ajay, and Mensplaining, produced by my friend Hafiz. You just heard him, the sock himself, one of Canada's most entertaining characters. He is Ed the Sock. And I am Moamir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.